0: Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals podcast. I hope you're all well. Today's guest, his name is Alan Saville. He got in touch, and as soon as I I read a paragraph about his life, and I thought, wow, okay, I need to speak to you. He's ex Metropolitan Police. He joined in the 80s. He was 18 at the time, and he then trained to be a dog handler, which is a very sought after position. So. He ended up chasing bad guys, as he puts it. But we're talking terrorists, rapists, armed robbers. And he drove around London by himself with a dog, sometimes undercover, sometimes working with flying squad in various scenarios. He was at Broadwater Farm, which if you Google, you can look that up. So this is a guy who has seen an awful lot. After an 18-year career, he then left the force for reasons that you'll find out about. He then went to work in a prison and it was a sex offender's only prison. He then used his knowledge from that to help others. This is a very, very simple summary of what this conversation was about i The theme that runs through it, I suppose, is that no matter how hard life is sometimes, it is still possible to hold on to your core beliefs if that doesn't sound too precious. You know, Alan is a people person. He has a faith in humanity and a decency that I just really admire. And I called the episode A Mutual Respect for the Bad Guys because, well, you'll find out exactly why. There are certain things that we discussed that, of course, aren't pleasant. You can't have a long career like that and live that kind of life without seeing some horrible things. And we talk about them in depth. And that includes Alan's son, Ian, who took his own life. But Alan, being the way he is, has dealt with that as well, everything that's come his way. And I found this humbling and really inspiring as well. I I went for a walk after it, actually. I I kind of needed to. And I hope you enjoy this. I thought it was fantastic. This is Alan Savile. I joined at a time when there
1: was... It needed a change, and by that I mean that, you know, there were some antiquated ideas, the ideas that, um, you know, domestic violence was a proper crime and crimes against uh, women and all that kind of stuff. They were just being discussed and revamped a little bit. There was uh, was a documentary on the Thames Valley Police, and it kind of caused ructions. So there was a lot of change there, but there were a lot of people who – were so dedicated, and they, they wanted to be a police officer for the right reasons, really. So I was quite lucky that I started off in uh, Finchley and Golders Green. So it was only up the road from Hendon. And a lot of people kind of laughed because, they, you know, most people, we wanted to go into, like, the Brixton areas and wanted to go into, like, the, the the areas where it's probably going to be a bit more uh, crash-pang-wallop, if you like. Right. So uh, the thing is, I think she's very affluent in a lot of ways. And also had some poverty. So it was a nice, nice group time, if you like, to start. And you, li- really your, you really learned your craft well. And I was very blessed to have a lot of really decent colleagues. Who And I can genuinely say that, you know, I didn't see anybody get stitched up. I didn't see anybody get badly beaten up. People were treated well, and that's exactly how I would have done it. Because I, I firmly believe, if you treat people well, you get the best out of them. So that's yeah. kind of where I was, really. So I, 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 until I became a dog handler, I was there for many years. I got a really good arrest rate. I was seen as a, a bit of a flyer, if you like. But I never really wanted to. I never wanted to go up through the ranks. I knew quite quickly I wanted to be a dog handler. And going up through the ranks meant that you weren't out on the streets. And I love going out on the streets. I love people. I love talking to them. I love catching the bad guys. But I also had a mutual respect for them, really, to be honest. And and that's probably where I differed from a lot of people.
0: A mutual respect for the bad guys. That's an interesting one.
1: It is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think really, and and I, I know now that there's a fine line, I think, a lot of the time between getting in trouble when you're young and not. And, uh, and so I, I knew people who had been in trouble, um, where I was, I was, uh, raised in Maidenhead. I, I knew people, but they weren't really bad people, to be honest with you. And um, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't have uh, respect for people who would abuse women, abuse children, um, sexual offenders. But, you know, for people who kind of, when I say, my, how can I put this people who made like, um were a little little bit on the edge, or would you know if oh there were a lot of paving slabs, so they'd have a few paving slabs away, or they'd do something like that, you know. It was a bit of a, a bit of a game, really, and and I could see I could get the adrenaline rush sometimes, the same as these guys did, but I treated them well, and they treated me well, uh, and and that's how I saw it, you know. It, they didn't know any different, or they a lot of people were stealing to survive. And survival is what we're about, really. So I didn't ever bear them any any malice. And I saw very quickly that there were a lot of people went down the wrong tracks, if you like, through no fault of their own. So in other words, they had childhood traumas. They had had loss when they were very young. They might have had a parent who's in prison or they were a single parent. And uh, or, or they were just not, you know, that they were in the wrong place at the right time, got criminalized and then. They just had to fight to survive, and I would never ever say that that is wrong. Where it is wrong, you know, is if people get injured, seriously injured, is completely different from from other things, really. So I had a bit of respect, and they would say hi to me, and I'd say hi to them, really. And I'm really proud of that because I can put my hands up and say that I was I was a decent guy. Uh, yeah. uh, and I would I would be so excited if I caught if I caught uh, people, and I feel really proud of it. But I'd also be proud if they shook my hand at the end of the night and said "Cheers" uh, and uh, thank you for being being kind of um, upfront and honest. And hopefully we won't meet again. And that was all I could hope for, really. And most people are like that, Matt. You know, yeah. there are the, the odd one or two who would who would who would uh, who wouldn't treat people right. But in the main, it was quite an honourable um, police service, really. Um, and people were there through, you know, there wasn't that much technology in those days, but it was through sheer graft and through sheer determination. And now, of course, there were a lot more police officers out there then, so you could really do stops and stuff because you knew if you if you, me, if you shouted, you'd get help,
0: right. So, uh, do you know what I'm interested in? Because it's it sounds like you were were very noble, which I admire. Can I, you tell me about the people who joined for the wrong reasons then? What was the difference between them and you? What were the wrong reasons? Um,
1: the difference was really is that I think there was an inability to, to, to kind of empathise. And although that the aim was to lock up the bad guys, they didn't really want to know the reasons why. They didn't really understand that low education could cause people not to get a job. They didn't realize that drug addiction was a, a horrendous thing which is going to cause people to right. potentially act in a different way. They didn't really want to know that. And so when those... Kind of things came up. It was oh, it's an excuse. They all say that, etc., etc., etc. And you could see then that you've got these recidivist um, offenders who would just go round and round and round and round again, and nobody really wanted to help them. So uh, we we, we kind of had that. I didn't have any. I didn't. I can't say there were any real like bent police. Out there, I, I genuinely didn't didn't know it. There were a couple who got caught doing ridiculous, stupid things. Right, we're always going to have a few like right, drink, drive, and all that kind of stuff, which sure. is still wrong. But I didn't really know any people who were there to, to just basically fit people up. Um, but it was just the perception that if you're once a bad, you're a bad person, you're a bad person for life, and nobody could change. And I think that was fundamentally wrong because we needed to try and break down that um, generational cycle, really, of, of, of um, arrest, prison, release, arrest, prison, release, because that's no good for them. It's no good for their families. And that was that that was the difference. So you were kind of seen sometimes as oh a bit soft or what have you. But I still got the better results because people trusted me and people would talk to me. And that is the difference, really. Uh, but I still had faith and I was really pleased and really, yeah. really pleased when people would come up to me and say, you know, I haven't been in trouble for years. And, you know, the way you treated me years ago, you changed my life and everything, because to me, that's a lot better than locking people up. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I was coming from on, on that. And a lot of those guys were probably a lot older than me because I, I came into police 18 and a half quite you know, from a from a, I was very blessed with a really nice um, family upbringing and what okay. have you, in quite a nice part of the world in in leafy Maidenhead near Windsor. So going into in, into uh, London, I had to have my wits about me because I was only very young, and so you know, and you have to make a stand sometimes and lead by example. But that does eventually get recognised, and 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 the older kind of perceptions and the older ideas were slowly. Getting weeded out, but it took a long time, and I'm sure that some of those guys probably damage people's kind of um, uh, uh, relationship within the police deliberately, yeah. um, and they also damage people's uh, resilience and ability to to make change.
0: I think it's amazing that uh, because you were a young man, but to have this kind of insight because you don't have that much life experience at sort of 18 or 19 or even in your early 20s. And yet you have that level of compassion and that faith in humanity to be able to say, well, actually, yes, okay, you're a bad guy or you've committed a crime, but I kind of understand why. That do you know? I yeah. think that, that that's a very un, is that that sounds like such an unusual perspective. I for my
1: parents, my parents were, ama- were amazing. Everybody says my dad's a good, but you know, my dad worked very hard. They didn't have anything. They actually lived through the war in London. And they met. They they didn't have anything, and they worked for every single penny. My dad made his way the civil service, yeah. but even then, he was very a principled man who would um, say what he thought for for the benefit of everybody else. And my mother. Um you know, she she had uh her 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 dad kind of popped his head around the door and said, I hope the next bomb hits this house and disappeared. We never even knew where he was wow. after that very much day. So it was her and her sisters and her mum. She had to fight for everything. So I think I think my idea of right and wrong and principles came from uh from from both of those. So I'm very, very blessed. Um but, you know, I'm also aware that we were, there were some other police officers who probably didn't have as good a start in life as me, who still had the same principles as me. But at 18 and a half, it's quite, it, it, it's an odd career, really, because, yeah. you know, you were asked to go into incidents, domestic incidents, domestic violence incidents, and people say, what do you know about life? And I'd have to put my hand up so I don't, but I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to I, – I want, I want to learn. Tell me what's gone on Yeah. because otherwise I'd be foolhardy to try and pull the wool over some people who, who have got a lot more life experience than me. And I think once you've got that understanding and you actually put your hands up and agree, well, then you can diffuse situations where people are more likely to kind of talk to you. Because there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. And and, and I I firmly believe, you say, well, I don't understand what you're going through, but I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to learn, is the way forward. So I've always had that. And and through all of my career, all the weird and wonderful things I've done, I've always had that in the back of my core values.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I think, did anyone ever take liberties? Because that's such a, I mean, that's a very... A very mature thing, but I'm also thinking: as well, if you're in the met place and you're in London and you're in an area that could be quite dangerous, to say, look, you're right. I don't have any life experience, but let's talk. That you know, in an ideal world, yeah, of course, that's so admirable. But did anybody ever take advantage of that? Was were you ever in danger?
1: Yeah, I mean um, not really to put me in, in danger, but I think that I probably had the, the wall pulled over my eyes a few times. But you learn very quickly and you learn by your mistakes. Um and, and this is where it became a bit of a game. You know. I I I was very lucky I wasn't put in, I wasn't really putting any yeah, I was put in hospital a couple of times and everything. It sounds very blase. <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff it now. And, yeah. and, you know, a uh, guy went to throw me under a bus and all that kind of stuff. But when I look back at it now, it was probably – I probably let my – you know, took my eye off the ball or something like that. But it wasn't – when I was naive, I kind of still had a quite a sharp brain and a capacity to either think my way out of trouble – or be able to diffuse situations by talking in a way where people would listen. And, and, and I think I probably had to do that a few times, but now, you know, considering that's the eighties, the, the, the bad times I forget, I forget about, I kind of remember all the, all the good things really, but I they, they must've been there because obviously streetwise criminals are, 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 are streetwise yeah. for a reason because they're good at what they do. So, um, you know, if I didn't catch someone or they took advantage, they'd always be a second time. And predominantly that was really.
0: Did you or anybody, any of your colleagues ever take it personally?
1: What, um, I should think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I. I remember. I had I had to go up to like the miners strike and everything. Um, and what I couldn't get my head round is that people couldn't see sometimes past that uniform. They'd see the uniform and they would see you as somebody who wanted to get out to get them or somebody who was trying to take advantage or someone who was, you know, was making money out of a bad situation. And I hated being painted the same way. And so sometimes, you know, uh, some of the uh, comments would be very personal or they would be very much threats towards your family or loved ones, and yeah. although that you kind of knew that it probably would never come to fruition, hearing hour after hour and after hour, when you're thinking you're not seeing me as a human being, you're just seeing me as this uniform person, I didn't used to like that, and I used to, I think that probably caused me anguish later on in life.
0: That's so interesting. I never, I never imagined that that anybody would feel that way. But of course, you would because, although criminals pre- face prejudice, I guess you would. You, there are assumptions that people make about the police as well.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I, and I think you know, you've got to, got to remember that most people went into the police force for the reasons to support their communities. But you know, when you're all. It, 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 I, I wouldn't have gone and, and, and uh, painted every criminal with the same brush. And I didn't really expect it to be the same for me. But a lot of the time, you know, when we were in, you know, I, I, remember, the, I remember the disputes down at the printers, you know, down in, in London and Wapping and all that. Some yeah. of the stuff said down there, from people who were probably 99.9% of the time genuine, decent guys from near enough the East End, what they would say, what they would do to your children, what they would do to your wives, girlfriends, wh- whatever, yeah. was horrendous. I mean, completely horrendous. And, I, and I, I don't think that anybody can say, oh, it's water off a duck's back, because you don't want to hear, hour in and hour out, that people, you know, oh, we'll find out where you live and we will sexually abuse your children. Ugh, yeah. Especially when you've got that. But people would say that. Um, and that was quite hard. I would I, I would far rather someone punch me in the face than yeah. say those things, because I could kind of get over that. But those things ingrain yourself into your mind and you kind of forget it. And so it wasn't our dread being down there. I just couldn't be really, I wasn't, I I had to stand there and take it for hours after hours. Some people who were, you know, decent people and they got caught up in it. And they just saw me. They didn't see me as Alan. They just saw me as this copper who was out there to, um, to, to to prevent them from doing what they wanted to do. And 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 I, th- I think that's where that's where it gets these grey areas a little bit of the time, really. Because you know, I, I, people say sticks and stones will break your bones, but it's those names and those very personal, um, graphic detail things which you will never forget.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine so how how did your career progress from there then so you you
1: um well because i had so many arrests i was quite lucky so i was on the radar so i got a few commendations and did all those kind of things which was lovely and as i say i was really blessed with the people who i worked with and i learned so much so i went in to be a a dog handler and they said "Ah, you will never get this at your age but i did so how um, old how old were you oh god how old was i then I, i saw some of the pictures the other day and i looked you know when they say our oh, coppers look young? Oh, my God. I think I was about 24, something like that, when I was a dog hander, about seven years, eight years after. 24, 25, 26, something like that, which right. is rel- relatively young. Right. And it was very much at the time, then it was Dead Man's Shoes. So you, they, they wouldn't recruit many. There'd be Somebody would leave, and then there'd be a place to fill. So I didn't go down the route of... Um, uh, 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 of like sucking up to dog handlers. I used them when I needed to do and I wanted to get there for the right reasons I wanted to Do the job because I, I was you had to be like a thief taker. So that's what I did So I had this amazing German shepherd who I was very blessed with um, and so I was then patrolling like a sixth of London really and this is when I came into what well, nearly I nearly came into contact would like my very good friend uh, Vinny, and we have had a good laugh about it over dinner, that I was kind of one of those guys who was uh, because I I did some firearms stuff, we were called into some of the big Big job. So um, we would be chasing these bad boys and, you know, proper criminals, arm robbers and all that. And we, we, we would be there with um, firearms crews. And we had some really, really good results. And this was the time of when we had like um, pages, you know, we didn't even have phones. so We'd have a page and then I'd be called out in the middle of the night to do specialist work and what have you. So that's what I was doing until I, I uh, became ill and had an injury. Okay. Uh, and I left after about, oh, God, 17 years, 16, 17 years, broke my heart. But, you know, I, I managed to get to the National Police Dog Championships. I did all these crash bang wallop stuff. So I was dressed up like the ninja, if you like. And so I'd be with the firearms teams, the only person un, unarmed. I'd do a lot of the undercover stuff as well. So there were days when I'd be sat days and days and days in unmarked vehicles, waiting for armed robberies to occur, waiting for stuff on like Broadwater Farm to occur. Um, Uh, and, and I had all that and it was an exciting time, which came to quite an abrupt end, sadly. Um, but I had a really good time. And even then, when we were dealing with some real big, big time criminals and criminal gangs, um, uh, hence the reason why I love listening to your podcast, because I'm sure that a few of those, we would have crossed paths. Yeah. I could still say I kept to those same principles and i was getting the adrenaline rush the same as vinny did actually um the same as terry would have done terry ellis you get that adrenaline rush and i was addicted to that adrenaline the same as they were so this is where it crosses this is where these parallels are there i would live for those calls and i would live for bombing around london uh, uh, on my own dressing up like uh you know with the so19 guys doing all those bits and pieces so i can conceive i can completely see why others got addicted to that power rush from their side as well. And I didn't see it as a as the enemy. It was a them and us situation which I knew eventually would come right. So that's what my career was all about, really. It was about honesty, it was about fun, it was about integrity, you know, and don't get me wrong, it's lovely when the when the dogs catch catch the bad guys really. Because it was about <laughs> summary justice sometimes. But even then they would still say thanks and shake my hand at the end of it. And and that is, you know, I can put my hand on my heart and be proud of what I did.
0: And you're friends now, aren't you? I mean, you mentioned Vinny, I think anyone who's listened to the podcast, I I, I love Vinny. I think he's hilarious. He's a very good natured guy and yeah. the most unlikely bank robber of all time. I oh think. Oh my
1: god yeah i was literally behind him you know i would i would have and i tell him i would have loved my dog to catch him um <laughs> and and i i'm actually <laughs> really? um i'm supporting his brother as well at the moment who as we know is still inside yes and because you know I, I, again it, it comes down to people's willingness to change and yep. i think that i i've got every ab- admiration for Vinnie I've got every admiration for Terry. Yeah. Excuse me. <clears throat> and a lot of the people you've spoken to who have literally changed their lives around through some real difficult times, actually. Mm. And I think that most of them had all these issues, which I've spoken about at the start of this.
0: Yes. Yes. But
1: so Vinny is, is a very good friend of mine. When I had my uh, uh, last stroke thing, he was one of the first people to uh, ask me how I am. And when we actually met, it was really weird because it was as though we'd known each other for years. Um and you know, some of the places where he used to hang out were places I used to patrol. And but to see people go through a a, a prison system, and obviously as you know, you know, I worked in a prison, to see people go through a system which is fairly antiquated, come out after so many years and be so positive is a major achievement and I think that I'm very blessed to have them as, as genuine friends. Um uh, and, uh, and, and so it's funny because it, even that part has gone full circle, Matt. Uh, and, and the parallels when we're talking are very, very similar in a lot of the ways we think, and especially now. Uh, and I think it reinforces it that they've got somebody who was seen as like the, the, uh, uh the, like the hunter, um, could actually sit down and talk to him man to man without any kind of ideology of prejudice or anything and i don't bear any of the malice in actual fact i think that what they've done and a lot of the people you've spoken to should be so highly commended and it is and it's something which we should be celebrating more in this country yes triumph over adversity
0: yeah abs- absolutely tell me about being a couple of minutes away on the tale of, of Vinny. then how, how would that oh have my
1: worked? god the bradishes <laughs> You know what? I'd, I'd I'd be driving around, so it was invariably the same sort of time, and so I'd be like driving around with the dog or whatever I was doing, thinking, well, oh, life's not too bad, a couple of hours, and then we would go Thomas Cook, and you'd think, oh my god, I know exactly who this is. Blue <laughs> light on and the old Astra, thinking one day they're going to be coming running out, and I know my dog was quite hard, and I thought I could do this. And then you'd get there and it'd be the same thing and nobody had seen anything. And it was insane. It was as though they just disappeared because all I needed is a track. So with a dog, if, if someone had said he's gone over that fence, I would have eventually got there somewhere. And so my, my dog had tracked up to five, six, six miles, six miles, genuinely up in Shenley Woods and all that and caught people in the past. So it was a massive rush because these were people who we wanted to catch. Nobody really had an idea of who they were. It was quite frustrating, but it was quite, I don't know, it was, like, it was like a film movie, really. You'd get there and you'd be thinking, oh my God, they've already done this one once. How how brazen are these people? And now I look back at it, you know, even then, it, I, I wasn't really thinking, oh my God. I was thinking, what are, they're cheeky. But at least nobody, when I say nobody was hurt, they didn't actually physically hurt somebody. And I've said this to Vinnie, that obviously having a shotgun, having whatever it is put up is a, is a frightening thing. And it needs to be recognized that it, it does uh, it, uh, do lasting effects. But I kind of saw them as these very maverick people who just were un, near enough untouchable, really. And so now we can have a good laugh about it. Um, at the time, did I would I have laughed as much? Not probably not as much, but I lived for that adrenaline. I lived for the day when I could come face to face. Luckily, possibly that you know I didn't because I might have been been injured or what have you. But you know, it, it, they were caught after I left actually. And when they were caught, I remember thinking, Oh my God, all the suffering a few years ago is these two guys weird times
0: yeah absolutely but you must have caught some some interesting people along the way then with the dog I'm assuming
1: oh my god yeah I mean I, I, we caught you know we, we she was she was an amazing machine really so we had you know what do we do from well from very high profile cases um which were you know like terrorist um cases we had caught armed robbers um I had tracked uh Rapists. I had uh, um, found with a dog. I remember we had to try and find like a um, a scene of a crime on Hampstead Heath, and we I managed to find the back of an earring. So the dog found that because it was sent on it. So it managed to get some uh, enough forensic to catch a person there who had attacked women. I I was in. um, I had I had um, people tried to get away, had machetes. Um, good luck with that because she she would get in first. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was a formidable creature, actually. So, yeah, I mean, we had some, we had, I wouldn't say particularly high profile in respect of who who, who, who the names, like familiar names. But, you know, I, I, I've been at the Old Bailey and seen people uh, in prison for 30-odd years and what have you. Yeah. Um, and it gave me great satisfaction, to be honest with you. And yeah. especially, you know, um, there, there, there were quite a few high-profile sexual uh, offenders, uh, um, and that was what I really liked catching.
0: Well, yeah, I can I can imagine <laughs> because because even I mean, look, I'm open-minded about people, and I agree that you know the prison system I don't think is necessarily the best way to change people. I don't think it's necessarily set up as good as it could be for no. reforming people. But when it comes to you know, mean, you mentioned a rapist, then I. I'm sort of envisioning this rapist being brought down by a dog. And I don't know if I could control my emotions. You know, how, how do you control yourself in a situation um, like that? I probably took a few seconds
1: longer to get there. Right. However, when the game was up and they were compliant, they were like any other prisoner. I would treat them with as much respect as I could muster. Right. But it was, you know, at that stage, what you've got to think about is if you're going for somebody, and predominantly a lot of these people were armed and what have you, the dog goes in first because I wanted to get home. And I would just hope and pray that she didn't get injured. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were everybody's aware of their unconscious bias. And I think that I would be a liar to say that, you know, it, it, did I worry when I, I, think, I think the worst injury is about 130 stitches, uh, in someone's back? Did I care? No, did I hell? Right. Because he deserved it, and he attacked an eighty-eighty odd year old woman, and then uh, went, ran off, and then tried to take the dog. So yeah. I didn't worry about it because I knew that when I when when he was compliant, the dog would come off. I would never ever um, use a dog if somebody was handcuffed or anything like that. I wouldn't. That isn't my game. But, you know, if you want to take the dog on, we'll take the dog on and take me on and pay the consequences. And I think that was fine. Most people weren't stupid enough to run or they'd run and then they'd stand still. And that's fine. But if you want to take the dog on, take the dog on. You know your consequences and I'll see you in hospital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was that, this is going to sound really silly, but was the dog friendly, like to you? I mean, you'd have a very oh close relationship with the dog.
1: Absolutely. You know what? I, I, I was a governor of my, um, uh, my children's school and so I would take the dog in I'd let her off the lead and I'd see her in a half hour she'd go around she'd go say hello to the children the children would pat her they'd drag her around they'd paint her they'd do whatever they wanted and she was amazing um and she knew the difference so you know there were times when um I remember going to a massive fight someone like Neesden or somewhere like that and then 25 minutes later she went and found a lady who would collapsed in snow was about 90 and did like a lassie moment where she led next to her. And this woman had her arm around her. her dog was barking. He's, wow. She's over here, Dad. <laughs> and that's how good she was. She could change and read people as well. So if, if if people were compliant, she'd be fine. If you wanted to take her on, she'd be fine. But the thing is, I never wanted her to be unapproachable because you never know who you're going to be looking looking for next so she was as friendly as hell but if i clicked my fingers and pointed at someone she would bite them it's as simple as that so it was quite subtle you could do it quite subtly really so i was one of the ones who was first picked for a lot of the football matches because she was a little bit mouthy she's only little and he weighs 65 pounds but she's like a machine gun and it's quite nice really it was, it was, <laughs> at least i knew i could get home safely but i i could put her in any situation with anybody could come into the house and she would have been completely fine with them
0: and when you left the force did she leave with you? Oh yeah. Right. Oh my god, yeah. Um I, I was just in the in the
1: middle of of having um getting a second dog. So the second dog was reallocated to someone. Um but no, she came with me. So they, they retired her to me and it was at the same time actually she moved in with my now wife, we've been married just over twenty one years, she moved in before I did. Right. And it was quite nice actually, because um she, uh, my, my wife had an ex who was quite vile and the dog knew. So it made her feel very, very safe. So yeah, she came with me and then we'd still do little bits of training, you know, every, every few days, finding bits or hiding children. And she'd love it because that's what she lived for really. And yeah, it was a big, uh, it was a big blow when she, she died quite suddenly of, of uh, cancer. And it was a big kind of blow because she was like my best buddy for, yeah. So many years. A lot of time in London, you know. And they said we weren't double crewed; we would just be on our own. So a lot of time it's just me and her for hours and hours and hours. And she got me through some tough times. You know, she stopped people stabbing me and um, trying to shoot me and all that kind of stuff. And to have a have her here one minute and not the next was pretty sad.
0: Um, it is. It's. I mean, I, I love dogs, and I and I get it completely. They're they're like family, aren't they? But I, I'm. Yeah. Um, how how does a dog? stop someone from stabbing you can, can you just sort of describe that i'm just trying to picture um, that in my head i i
1: if you found somebody and they'd come towards you you have to give them a warning and it was really a matter that i had complete trust in her and they live by that what they do they the dogs see it as a game really they because when they're we're training it's all a big game um to them and it's completely safe and and so they just see that person coming towards them as another, they don't see him as a criminal, they just see it as a game where somebody's got a knife. But then after a while, their instincts do take in, especially the same as, you know, she was probably a bit more naive when she was 18, uh, when uh, when she was first on the streets, it was the same as I was in an 18 and a half, but after a year and a half. She'd be more streetwise. So she'd be able to pick up on people's vibes and their adrenaline. And, what you know, you'd have to say, you know, you come near me, this, you, you're going to get taken out. And then you just release the dog. And she it, she would just go into this amazing mode where, A, that she could, she she always went for the hand or something where there was a weapon. And she was a lot faster than they were. And and she would literally just hang on. And there, there there aren't many people who could then, you know, put a knife or whatever it was into another hand and start attacking the dog. It doesn't happen very often Yeah, because it hurts. You know, it does hurt even when you have like the, the, the sleeves and stuff on. It's still you can still feel it. And it's quite a, an intense pressure. So you had to back your dog up. And then you know, if somebody's got a knife to me and it's a them enough situation, the same as any other time, you will be neutralised somehow. And I don't care how I did that. Yeah. Until you're safe, and you know, and, and I, you know, I, I, if I had to, I, if I had to punch somebody, I would have punched them. And I thought I'd always put my hands up to it. If it's justified, I'd do it. If I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't do it. But the dog would just know, and because it feeds on your adrenaline. And so it knows there's something up. And then when someone comes out of the shadows or something, you know, and when, when you do your kind of, your, your, your challenges and everything, they know, right, this is the time when I've got to do it. And they just do it. It's an amazing thing, actually. It it it, it, it's, it uh, always amazes me at how they could differentiate and how they knew when it was a game and when it was real life, really. Uh, but they just did it. And, and hence the reason, you know, well the Met had the biggest breeding programme in the world because they just chose the right dog. So it was a very it was a it was an amazing um a good few years as a dog handler, really. And it the, that they were probably some of my, my most treasured um moments and, and memories.
0: Yeah. I, I, I can imagine. So you, you left the Met and you said that you were injured. Can you, can you tell me how that happened? Yeah, I
1: had, um, I, I had a few mental health issues, really. I think, really, that I hadn't dealt with some PTSD stuff. Um, okay. And I think it got on top of me and it just got worse and worse and worse, which made, it, made life quite tough for me at the time, um, which has probably given me this insight of what I do now. Uh, and I was quite vulnerable. So I had the opportunity to, to, to leave which broke my heart, but I didn't want to do a job where I wouldn't feel backed up or I wouldn't feel as though I could do that job for 100%. So I had to make um, quite a tough decision, really. But I think in, in hindsight, it was, it was probably um, the right one. So I'm very interested with people who are dealing with the PTSD now and uh, even now with what I do in charity-wise and stuff. I'm helping police officers at the moment who are probably going through the same stuff as me. So, it's very- it can be a little bit of a macho world it, or you know you're expected to yeah. kind of suck it up and get on and these were the times when you know the mill hill i r a bombing so I was there at first there, and all these other little bits and pieces and going into terrorist situations and having bombs go off all around you it takes its toll, so sadly that was me really so i i i went um not under a cloud, got my exemplary um certificate from the from the commissioner and off I went
0: can i ask and this is very personal but how in what way does it take its toll because you know you hear about you hear about ptsd and i know it's a very real thing i do understand that you know i'm certainly not being flippant in any way no. but how, how does it manifest itself
1: um it it can it it can hit you at very inopportune moments really i started to get quite paranoid I started to not trust anybody I started to I couldn't really relax in a situation because all the time I was kind of thinking it's something bad going to happen not to me or just in the surroundings really I would have a lot of memories of um, some really sad things you know uh, cock deaths and car crashes with children and uh, abuse and neglect and stuff would really it would really um, hurt me. But I didn't really notice it. So I think my sleep pattern was getting worse. So if you think, you know, I'd get home at about half past six in the morning after nights, I would probably get two hours, three hours sleep. That's the time I'd just be sat there. And it wasn't a time, you know, when you could have social media or do anything, I'm just twiddling my thumbs. So I was getting more and more tired. I was getting, um, uh, and I just think that, it just brought down my, my resilience to life, really, um, which, which was probably a big factor in the breakup of my first marriage. Um, and it makes it quite intolerable for people who are, uh, who are around me. And I think you don't really realize that. Uh, but I can still remember things now. Sometimes, you know, I could watch something on the TV. I could, I could even be walking around and something would, uh, that memory would come back to me and I have to. I know it's kind of coming because I just have a little weird feeling in my my back of my brain, thinking, oh, I'm not going to feel quite right in a minute. And so I try to do something. Or my wife can read it, read me, and she just kind of thinks, oh, Alan just needs a little bit of time on his own. Um, and she keeps an eye on me, but I just have my five minutes. So it's still there, really. Um, and it's it, it, it can be tough, but I've accepted it. Um, do I really need to get some help? I'll probably get some help sometimes but you know I kind of manifest itself in me helping others at the moment um, which is kind of my therapy but I'm very aware of what it has done um, but I'm very thankful for the people around me because I think you know without my support network would I still be here now I doubt it wow
0: blimey can you can you recognize PTSD in other people then as the things to look um, out for
1: I think you have to recognize it yourself, really. I still think there's this culture that, you know, this is a macho world and you've got to, you can't say anything. And it amazes me how many people are still unwilling to talk about their feelings. Um, And at the moment, I mean, I I claim, I claim local authorities across the country and reducing parental conflicts. And one of the things we talk about is feelings and people still can't, especially men, can't talk about their feelings very much. They find it very difficult. They see it as a weakness. Or or, you know a a sign that they are are, they aren't as strong as they should be, and so we're always going to fight this battle, and so you're always going to have, by the sheer nature of this job, and let's you know let's be honest that at the moment anyone in emergency services with COVID and the rest of it must be going through some intolerable, horrendous stuff. And I know police officers don't want to stop people from not wearing masks; they want to do the job which they signed up to do. And so I've got no doubt that there's going to be more and more people. Um, who are in the same boat. However, having said that, what is quite sad is that I have helped I have helped met, met officers who've wronged me because they don't trust their own internalised um uh medical uh uh structure and so they'd far rather talk to someone who can kind of understand and they'll talk to me but then you know what they're being seen as now is what, what hurts them worse is they get, they they're encouraged to talk. But then they said, well, you're too expensive. You know, a 20-year service PC, we could get two brand new ones for you, so go. So there's no real support a lot of the time, and that's a real tragedy. Um, But people have to recognize it for themselves and be able to realize that something has changed. And then it's a matter of really listening to what they say and responding to what they say. And I can relate to it because I've been there. And I think sometimes, you know, we're all well in the world. Some counselors haven't been there, and so you can't really empathize. So it's very, it manifests itself in so many ways, Matt. It can manifest itself in drinking or, you know, um, behaviors which could be seen as dangerous or affairs or, I don't know, uh, abuse, uh, neglecting themselves, financial. There's so many things there. Sometimes this thing can creep up. It's like a slow burner, and then it hits you. And once it hits you, it's very difficult to know where to turn because you're expected to be this amazing person just because you put a uniform on. It doesn't mean that you've got a a a a, um, a, 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 a right not to be able to uh, deal with issues. It doesn't make you any less of a person, we're only human beings. And I say to people, it's like a pressure cooker. If you don't allow that pressure to get off, come go somehow, it will hit you. And so, yeah, I do kind of recognize it, but people don't, I, I worry. I think there's still a stigma about any mental health, you know, in this country. That, oh, I can't say it because it's mental health. People will laugh at me. People think I'm mad. People will just, uh, uh, um, uh, won't know what to say to me and that is where it, it, it's falling down sadly
0: I'm just trying to sort of put myself in your shoes you know you've had a very successful career in the Met and then you acknowledge that well you've seen a lot and as a result you know you feel that it's best to leave what, what's it like when you leave the police and you ha- you know, you've been addicted to the rush of, of doing your job what do you replace it with and how do you I I,
1: I couldn't for a long time I hated it I'm very much a people person, so you know I I did some other little jobs. I I I was very blessed. I was in a very stable uh, relationship. I just got married, so that was over twenty twenty two years ago. But the comradeship is you can't replicate that anywhere else. And I've never known a a job where you can do that. You know, I, I I'm always going for jobs where I'm part of a team, and I like that part of a team. And I do kind of like. The danger. So, you know, I I worked in prisons. I've done all these other bits and pieces, done security, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing will replicate what I was with. So I was kind of where you'd have like a massive group of friends. um, You're kind of left on your own. And sadly, once you've gone, you're gone. You'll find some people will stick with you. And I've still got some friends from 1980, 81, 82 now. But most people won't really ever ask you how you've gone because you're not part of that kind of, clicky family and so I just had to kind of reinvent myself really. Um I tr- I still try to treat people as good as I can. Uh you know I I still try to try to use my experiences in whatever I was doing. So I was quite confident in being able to talk to people and everything. But it still wasn't the same rush. And it never would nothing could ever replicate that at all. Um, and until you've done that kind of job um I don't think you'd get it. I mean, I'm thinking that some people who have been criminals will probably still miss that rush. But they've got that ability now to move that away. If you said to me, "Okay, uh, Alan, they need they need uh, they asked a decrepit old 55 year old to go back in the police tomorrow um, with all my issues, they'd be a bit mad to do it. But if they said that, I'd, I'd do it tomorrow. No problem whatsoever.
0: It's interesting you talk about danger as well, and sort of being a, a, being addicted to it. Were you ever afraid, or does that addiction and the adrenaline yeah. rush take over? I
1: was afraid. Yeah, I was at Broadwater Farm. I had my I had my helmet thing. I got. I, I was in the next road to where Keith Blakelock died. I was right. If you remember the pictures, there were the pictures where there was a burning house right next to people. I was there um, all the time, and we weren't relieved. And I actually did think that more of us were going to get killed that day. We were completely outnumbered. That was a scary day. Um, there were some scary, uh, scary times when we were waiting for things to happen. But that adrenaline rush was was it was addictive. Later on, you'd go and sleep forever, or if it never happened, never materialised, that adrenaline dump would be would 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 kind of drain you for many days. Um, but yeah, I I I, I love that danger because I also had fully full confidence in my colleagues, and I was thinking, you know, if it does, things really do hit the fan here. There's more of us than there are of them, and eventually we'll win. But, yeah, there were some times when I, I was, I was uh, terrified. Um, uh, and, uh, but I've kind of managed to not think of many. But, it's obviously, Broadwater Farm was, was a horrendous day for, uh, in British history, really. Um, and we were let down. We were completely let down, and I think that's been, you know, that that that's obvious for everybody to see. But that was probably one of my scariest, um, my, my scariest uh, moments. And a lot of the other ones where I was probably in real mortal danger, I didn't. I, I still felt in control, but there I was just a pawn in a big game, and 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 the the officers on the street were left left hung out to dry, sadly.
0: And tell me about working in prisons. Then, were, were you a prison officer? Is that what you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: I've, I've done so much. It's crazy, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I, I, it was. This is. This sounds really weird, but in in 2012, as you know, that uh, uh, my son took his own life. So he was 23. He, he died three days before um, Christmas, and it did change me as a person. i would become even more. Uh, 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 show more empathy and a, and a willingness to help people especially with mental health and all that but then I had to find a job so I thought to myself you know what I always thought I, I can kind of understand criminals a little bit I can understand where they're coming from I know that I can look after myself in respect I could probably talk to people I could put talk people down I'm a, I'm a people person I'm a team player so why not go for it so I went along for the interview and it wasn't particularly the most arduous interview I think there were desperate for people really and as we went we went and had a little look around the prison so we went in the prison and they, they dropped this massive bombshell on me they said oh do you realize that this is changing from a category b prison to sex offenders only and i thought oh my god am i going to do this am i still going to do it and i thought we'll give it a go so i went in it was probably the oldest one on my on my Oh, God, by a long way, actually, on my intake and everything. The intake was quite quite easy, and it was all right. It was all right. I mean, we were completely under understaffed. There were a lot of staff who were demoralized. There were a lot of staff who weren't particularly great. But like anything, there were some really good ones there. Um, uh, and I believe that, you know, I would still, although, you know, would I have worried if that place sort of burnt down and taken all those sex offenders out? Probably not, to be fair. And that's me being open and honest. But, you know, I still had a duty to show people some kind of respect with the idea that some of them, even 1%, might actually change their lives around and come out as people who weren't dangerous. So I eventually, I I did a lot of work on the landings. I was never really one who was getting in trouble. I would be able to placate people. I would listen to people. I would lead by example. Um, and it amazed me. It was the same people who were always getting getting into fights and what have you. Um, but that wasn't me. I'd still get the job done. I enjoyed it. And then I became uh, an offender supervisor. So an offender supervisor basically oversees people's sentences. So you'd be there, you'd take your caseload on, and I think we'd probably have 80, 75 cases each, um, which is quite a lot. So you would actually oversee their sentence plans. You would make sure they're adhering to that. If there were any issues, you'd deal with that. You'd write their parole reports. Um, You would oversee their um, sex offender treatment programs and all that. So you'd you'd really be a major part of their lives. And you were in a great opportunity to either try to get some kind of rehabilitation or you were in in that position where you could actually near enough deny somebody parole. So it was it was a period of power. But it was very obvious to me that, you know, a lot of the people who were in there were never going to change. And as Terry has said to you and Terry's book, um, Live Amongst the Beast" really resonated with me because I know there are people in there who would just talk the talk, say the right buzzwords in the vain hope that they were going to move on. And that really worried me. And so I would fight against that. Very much so. And I would be open and honest with them. And I'd say, I don't believe you. I don't believe that. that's changed you. And I'm going to put that in reports. And they would like looking at me and say, we don't do that. That's not how you do this. We we say the right words. You support our move and we'll move. And no, sorry. And that's it. But it got to me again. You know, I cannot, how can I put this? It's. If, and I'm not talking about a woe is me by any means. I wouldn't want anybody to listen
0: to this. No, it doesn't sound it. For it. No.
1: But listening and having to read case histories of some of the most depraved, dangerous, vile criminals ever eventually takes its toll. If it doesn't, I think people... Or if people say it doesn't, they're lying, Matt. Because... You know, nothing nothing would surprise me how one human being would, would treat another. I kind of had that when I was in a Met. But then, you know, I was reading stuff which was heartbreaking. And you could see why people would leave when they start having children and stuff. Um, and you, you could see why people just couldn't cope with it. But I tried as long as I could. So I did the job again to a very, very high standard. Um, uh, and I was well-respected in there. But, you know, I would fight. I, if people wouldn't deserve parole, I would quite willingly stand up in front of a parole board and say, but if there were people there who did actually want to change and had made the effort, I would support them as well because otherwise it's, I'm not being professional. So I'd managed it for four years, and then I have decided that I wanted to go the other way and help victims. So that's kind of what I did. So, so I, I, I went to a residential children's home, which was kind of last stop, uh, last chance saloon really before somewhere would be put into a secure unit so a lot of children that had been sexually mentally or physically abused sometimes all three and and I was there until that closed so that was an amazing place 16th century manor house 18 acres of grounds a lake all that kind of stuff good luck trying to find them where they'd run off at 3 in the morning and, <laughs> you, know, you 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 yeah. <laughs> but they were amazing children and and it it kind of it is it is kind of taking me full circle if you like so i was helping children and helping people who were in crisis and sadly you know with my son when he died he probably wasn't helped by a, prof- by a professional so it allowed me to have an understanding of where how sexual offenders worked and so i could go back and be role models for people who were victims as well um and so that's what what Got me to where, you know, I I did that again to a high standard. And you could see children would change purely by seeing a male in in a role where they weren't going to get abused. And I had that, you know, there was one girl there who said, you know what? You're the only person of your age, which is charming, isn't it? The only person of your age who's never tried to abuse me.
0: God, wow. And
1: that's hard to hear, you know, but it also is quite a lovely thing. And and she was very, she was a a, a prolific self-harmer. Um, and there was only me and two other people who would, you know, she'd, she'd come around the corner with a broken bottle. And I knew she'd never hurt me because I, I, I treated her well and used all of my experience and empathy to try and defuse the situation. But try to make her realize that not every man is going to sexually abuse her. So, you know, it, it was going from one quite a, a, a tough regime, if you like, in the prison. Um, and i 'll come back to prison actually in a minute because um, I was talking to uh, Sean Bradish about this the other day, and so I went from like a prison environment um, to uh, you know locking uh, uh, up offenders to try and help these poor innocent children who, so if they weren 't helped now, would no doubt go on to be criminalized themselves um, but with the prison there's a there is a I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to walk around a prison or being, you know, you can go around and go on visits. There is a different smell inside a prison than there is outside. And as soon as you go out in, in, at night and go out of those gates, I would breathe in the air cause, because it was different. And that is how, how, that's how how prisons do get to you, really. I would always have a shower when I got home because I just felt dirty. And for anybody who listens to these and thinking, oh, my God, they have it easy. They don't have it easy. I'm not saying sex offenders should have it easy. But at the end of the day, that prison is is run near enough the same as other ones, apart from it being a private prison. Um, They're cold. They're formidable. They're dangerous. You know, when you you have to wait six months for a decent mattress, you have to put in an application to have another blanket. You have to work. 40 30 hours, whatever it is, for about six pounds and everything, it is a punishment. And for anybody who have got PlayStations and all that kind of stuff, have got to realize if they did not have those things there, you would it'd be such a volatile area. As soon as open those doors, there'd be prison officers would be killed left, right, and center, or they'd be killing each other. It's there to try and suppress this, this, this need, and so they are horrendous places, really. Um, but, um, they can also be places of rehabilitation as well so yeah that's kind of where i was really on on those uh, on on those those professions it just seems as though i've gone from one to another where (laughs) people are in crisis yeah um and i've helped people
0: yes yes you have no that is definitely the theme throughout and you definitely like a challenge blimey (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I, sometimes, I, uh, sometimes I, I don't know when to say no, do
0: I? <laughs> I, I want to ask you about because in prisons, in in a conventional prison, shall we say, if there is such a thing, there's yeah. there's a hierarchy. You know, you you generally, in terms of respect, I know that's a sort of a word that's thrown around a lot, but yeah. it seems to be that you know you've got the armed robbers at the top yeah. because of what they do, and then possibly drug dealers next, and it sort of filters down. When yeah. it's all sex offenders, is there a hierarchy? Oh yes. What, uh, how, how does uh, it work it, then? It, it's, you had, the, the,
1: it was starting to get more, um, there were a lot of very older people in there, right? Um, and they were kind of just seen as, people just accepted them. They never really asked what they did, but they would stick together. And Terry said exactly the same thing. So yeah. people who were into children would stick together when they would have their, their association and what have you. But if you were seen as... Um, a oh god like a violent rapist you would be higher up that pecking order than somebody who abused children oh god, yeah. and they would use it to their, their advantage and there would be little clicks it would be very backbitey it would be very much a, oh we we aren't as bad as those people and they couldn't see they couldn't differentiate the fact that they were all there and have all damaged people's lives. So there was still this hierarchy and it would very much come into, you know, um, dare I say it, that it it was um, also to do with religion because a religion would near enough bring somebody near enough, like a mini gang within a prison. So people would start to follow religions, which are probably seen as more volatile um, and they would, Use that to their advantage, but the thing is different than a, than a conventional prison. Is the amount of attempted manipulation is extraordinary. They would manipulate anybody, and they would try to manipulate every single member of staff, and they were very successful at doing it. They would pick. There were there were you know, um, very naive people going in there and they were being used near enough, not so much to bring contraband in, but to find out what's going on to get a better sell and all that because they were being played from the moment they went in to the moment they went out. Right. And there were masters of, of it there and they were the ones who were kind of near enough running the wings. So it wasn't like a big gangster who would run a, run a wing. It was possibly someone who's been a very violent sexual offender who would also, you know, when you're looking at 78-year-olds there, they would be completely terrified of those, but they would pick the people around them who would be like-minded, not so much as minders, but have the same mindset. So this is what worried me, is because they were discussing their crimes. Yeah. And they were getting off on discussing their crimes. Jesus. And I think when Terry said that, he, he said exactly the same at Grendon, you know, that there would be this kind of them and us, that they didn't see themselves as as like other, other other offenders. And it was it was a very weird situation to get my head round because as far as I was concerned, they were all there as category B sexual offenders. So they're all as dangerous as each other. Some were more vile than others, but they would, you know, for instance, I remember seeing somebody, There there was a mass panic that they were in like the Sunday mirror or something because they had, this guy had killed his two-year-old niece after sexually abusing her killed her and just wandered off down the high street as you would and yeah. it was in the paper people were calling in names half hour later they were playing Paul and, and snooker with him and so nothing's ever happened and that is weird yeah because i wouldn't be able to you know and i was thinking you're vile and i was thinking you might get your comeuppance here but no one ever did it because they accepted each other it was, it's like this weird inner code and hence the reason why I don't think that many of them are actually going to be rehabilitated.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. God, that's just horrific. I don't know how anybody could do that. That—that's just you know, it's not often. It's not often that I sort of pause for any kind of judgment on the podcast, <laughs> but that—wow, I, I can't even get my head around that.
1: That's yeah, it's vile.
0: It's yeah, vile. yeah, I can't you know, even. And,
1: and don't yeah. you know? Don't strut up down this, down in front of me thinking you're untouchable. And at the end of it, I was really thinking, Matt. You know, I will explode here and I'm going to seriously hurt somebody in this prison. Yeah. And I will get in, 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 in trouble with it. And so I did want to get myself in trouble to doing it. But it's impossible not to be affected by it. Yeah. You, 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 you can't be, you know. Um, but, yeah, there, there was a very much this, uh, this hierarchy. And I think it was probably getting worse and worse. By the time I left, it was probably getting more and more out of control. Um, purely because I think some of the time they didn't have the right people to do the job in there. Um, uh, and to me, yeah, you have to start somewhere. But why put 18, year, 19-year-old 18, girls who will still go into work fully made up when they are dealing with sex offenders? It, it didn't get, you know, just scrape your hair up and don't try to be attractive because you are attracting sexual offenders to you. So, and that's crazy. I don't know that you should be able to wear exactly what you what you want, but there needed to be some kind of, of common sense and, and purpose of your self-survival for young girls in it. Some of them were amazing, but some would put themselves in the most stupid positions or be flattered by sexual abusers saying they look nice, and they would think that was a marvellous thing. And so, you know, there's a lot to be done in these sex offender-only prisons if they work at all. I don't particularly think they... They do. I think that maybe it should be a a wing in a, a main's prison um, as opposed to sex offender only because they're only going to be dealing and, and actually talking to other people who've got the same kind of preferences as them. Yeah. Wow. I'm on I, the soapbox now.
0: <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. I i am gonna i'm listen i'm gonna listen back to this and still have to take a pause to to sort of uh, to get my head around it all. I i'm i'm going to ask you about your son. Now, the reason okay. the reason I'm going to ask you about your son is because obviously he took his own life. But the reason I'm asking about it is because I know that there might be someone else who has been through a similar experience. and Maybe they're yeah. going through it now. So and I know that, you know, you, you, you come. I know that you're a guy who wants to help people. How this just this is not meant to be trite in any way. But how how do you get over that? and Do you get over it? Um, how do I get over
1: it? It's funny enough, this is exactly what I've written for Terry's book. I described the moment when I had this knock on the door. So if I just put it into context, right, is that three days before Christmas, I've just done eight hours on the radio, live radio. So all the dials and everything on my own. there, fantastic. Playing only heavy rock music and all that kind of stuff. Life was quite good. Three days to Christmas. I know that my son had had mental health issues. I know that he was actually... Starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. In hindsight, that's probably the time when people are more vulnerable. So I got a knock on the door, um, police car outside. So you automatically think, oh, something's gone wrong, and you automatically your heart starts to go. So these two people, sheepish, came in, um, didn't really want to say anything. I was small talking because you know, then I don't, I just see police officers as an ex-colleague if you like, chatting away. And then they said, your son's taking his own life um he was found hung at his uh, house it was probably the biggest blow to me within that two or three seconds um i will ever have i don't think anything else will replicate it um i went to pieces within seconds i was like wailing etc etc the police didn't know what to do they didn't really say well, okay it'd be all right one of them still stood up a, a towering above me I phoned up my wife, who was just starting to get some bits and pieces. She came home, and it was a start of a long struggle for recovery. Um, If I could have done a magic wand and taken his place, i.e. given up my 47 years or whatever it was then, for his 23 years, I would have done it. And I genuinely meant that. Um, And I just couldn't believe it. I was... At that stage, I wasn't angry. A lot of people have like a uh, an emotion of uh, anger why have you done this it was just a severe shock severe grief he left behind a little girl he left behind his fiancee his ma and i had to do all the phone calls to my daughter to my ex-wife to my brother's sister all that type of stuff to say that this young man had died um and he was quite a remarkable young man he he, he, he wasn't an angel uh he had been in trouble a few times with the ple- little things because he stood up for principles and he got, he got himself in trouble. So I had the, uh, I, I sat there the first few days I ended up on medication. I ended up at hospital the first day. Um, my good friends, um, Kathy Martin came, drove up from Surrey and was with my wife. And, you know, I went to pieces, but I got through it. I had to because we still had a Christmas day. My father wasn't getting any, any, uh, younger. And I just needed to just do something relatively normal. It wasn't the same Christmas, and it never has been since. Um, but there was this deep sense of loss. I had a psychiatrist who, said, oh, your son, who, who called me said, can you come in? He started crying and said to me, your son was a remarkable person. He wanted to help others. He wanted to use his own experience of mental health to help other people. Um, and there were a lot of issues there. Well, I don't know if you guys anybody's anybody realizes that a GP isn't allowed to share notes with a psychiatrist because it's patient confidentiality and something happened to Ian when he was around 15 which um, the last thing he would want would be um, have like an internal examination and they couldn't even get their notes together like that so he was put under more and more pressure more and more pain and the only way I could get around it is to think you know he was in so much pain, so much which he would, he, you know, he would have the courage, and I genuinely mean that, have the courage to take his own life. He is free from pain, whatever that is. And wherever he is, he would be at rest. And that's what got me through it. And then I suddenly thought, well, where do I go? I'm this big, you know, I've, I've seen bombings, I've seen murder victims, I've seen blah, blah, blah. And now I don't know where to go. What do I do with myself here? So I couldn't find anyone to help me. Um, We got through Christmas. And then when it was his um, funeral, I said in front of Ian in in his packed church, I'm going to help other people. I'm going to do something to prevent other people not knowing where to turn. And that's kind of been my savior, really. So we started off Ian's Chain Charity. So if anybody wants to see pictures of Ian and all that, It's www.ianschain.co.uk and have a look at that and see what we do. So I made that, um, I I, I made a a promise in front of Ian that I would help people and it's manifested itself from there really. I fully understand that there is going to be a grief process, but everybody grieves differently. There's going to be people who are angry. There are going to be people who think, what else could I have done? Um, but in when you really look at it, Matt, there, there isn't anything else you could do. If someone wants to die, they will probably take their own life. There are people who want to die and there are people who want to um, kind of um, want things to change. But what people have got to do is ask. And even at that darkest time, they've got to be able to contact somebody. But I don't know how they must feel. Because sadly, there aren't that many people who really genuinely can have to take their own lives who survive. So there isn't that much data out there to say how somebody feels. I would like to think that they have an inner, calm, serene feel that everything is going to be all right. But what people out there have got to realize is that it's a, it, they're not doing it to cause problems for people who are left behind. They are doing it out of dear love for the people who are left behind because they feel that they are a burden to their loved ones. They feel that they are going to be a continual burden. So they're trying to take that burden away. They don't realize that that grief is always going to be there because you're a survivor. You survive it. You're not, you know, people say to me, oh, well, you know, time is a great healer. Time, all it is is it, it means that you have learned to, um, you, you you learn to um, live in a different way. There's not a day I don't, it goes by where I don't think of Ian. There's not a day when it doesn't just come out in weird things. You know, I could just be walking down the street and think about it, but that's fine because I'd far rather remember that. But my life is different now. My, my life has changed um, completely. Um, I know that I show more empathy than I, than even I did beforehand, but I survive it because I've got my family and friends here and I need to survive it for them. And I need it to survive it for other for, for, for other people. Now, the Ian's Chain Charity helps families who are left behind. So we try to think things in a progressive way. So if, if, if in the, the, the months since I saw them last, if they've managed to cut the lawn, it's something to be celebrated. It's something going back to normality. And, and we have this uh, canny ability to talk to people in a way where they say, my God, no one's ever spoken to me like that before. Because I can say I know how you feel because I do know how you feel. So, that is the difference between a lot of counsellors and bereavement counsellors and what we do. So I say it exactly as it is. I don't flower it up. I help people through From the, I've had people phone me up an hour after they found somebody all the way through to 15 years later and I've never failed to help anybody. Um, so that's kind of what, what I do. It's always in the back of my mind. It hasn't made me particularly well. So I've had strokes. I've had diabetes was probably caused by the shock and all that, but I don't vary in any malice on, 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 on that. It is what it is. And I've had to make the most of what I've got. So, so I can put my hand firmly on my heart and say we have probably saved 35, 40 people who were either, who were, who were either planning or were in the middle of trying to take their own lives. We've we've made them safe, and a lot of those are still going. We haven't particularly failed many people. Um, We have helped hundreds of families, um, and at the moment we're looking at the parallels between domestic violence and um, uh, suicide. So that's something else which we're looking at at the moment, and we're looking at all these other areas which we can uh, help people. So, But without that, I don't know how I would be. I'm completely honest with you um, because it keeps me going, sometimes to my detriment, but hence the reason why I, I, I am now wanting to try and get involved and in trying to prevent suicide within um, prisons, and I'm starting to look at um, bereavement, counselling in prisons and something as well. So things have changed. I'm still here. I still enjoy, well, when we could go to gigs, I'd, I'd go to concerts. I still have a laugh. I've still got friends. I will still have my own life, yeah. but it doesn't stop me thinking about Ian.
0: Thank you very much to listen. I hope you enjoyed that. And of course, a huge thanks to Alan Saville for being such a fantastic guest. There will be more podcasts. It's difficult in these times, really, with COVID, but this was a bit of a test to see whether we could do it over the phone. And of course, when you get someone as good as that, it's well, it's easy, really didn't have to do an awful lot, but um, so there will be more. So please do like and share and comment, you know, let me know that you're out there. Let me know that you appreciate this. I'm not overly needy. It's not that, but you know, we all need a little bit of encouragement sometimes. I'm at Matt price comedy, which, because uh, obviously I was a comedian or I am a comedian by trade. So it'd be great to hear from you. Most of all, Keep listening, stay safe, and I will speak to you again. Bye for now.